talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston. You gotta love that song. And if you don't, you're not a baseball fan. And if you're not a baseball fan and you're sitting here listening to me, somebody told you some good stuff about me. I don't know what it was, but trust me, this is a podcast about baseball. Hey, everyone, Kurt Bavacqua here with episode five of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. I actually have someone other than David Wells that's actually on the pine with me tonight. All the other podcast, I've had people that came in on the phone, but... I have someone in studio. We'll get to him in a second. I'll tell you about him first. Ballard Smith. Yeah. You know that name if you're around San Diego. Former president of the San Diego Padres. Served on the board of directors of McDonald's Corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wore some big shoes. Still does. On the phone with us tonight, Johnny D'Aquisto, one of the players that Ballard looked over as president of the ball club. He will be on the phone with us, and we're going to be talking to him, a former number one draft choice at a St. Augustine High School here in San Diego. We're probably not going to talk a lot about the actual game of baseball. We're going to talk to Johnny D, believe it or not, about the rules of baseball. And you know why? Because he now works for MLB. MLB.com, MLB Network, and we'll let him explain it to you on the different jobs that he has. And we're going to set a lot of people straight on the confusion revolving around all the new rule changes. I'm going to have a rant. I have a feeling I'm going to have a rant tonight. And we're going to cold call Hall of Famer for my Patreon subscribers, my Patreon reward members. We're going to cold call a Hall of Famer. How about that? What other podcast can you tune into where somebody's just going to call a Hall of Famer that has no idea that they're going to be called? Yeah, This is like morning radio, morning FM radio, where people cold call people and give them crap on the air. We're, that's exactly what's going to happen. So I hope this guy answers the phone. Ballard Smith led the Padres to the 1984 National League Championship and served on the executive committee of Major League Baseball from 1984. I want you to note these years, 1984 to 1987. Those three years are substantial in the history of the game. And you know what? I've always wondered why Ballard and I have become pretty good friends over the years and why he believed in me when he was president of the Padres. And in the research that I did, yeah, I did research for this show. I think I found out why. Here's a description of Ballard Smith in his early days with the San Diego Ball Club when he first got here. I don't even know if you know about this, but welcome, Ballard. Welcome, to my pine. Dirty Kurtz dugout. Smart alecky. Cocky. Pompous. Arrogant. These are descriptions of this guy that I got to be honest with you. I really haven't seen much of. Maybe a little cocky because, hey, he's a su- successful guy. He's sure of himself. There's nothing wrong with that. But anyway, the reason I pointed that out wasn't to get get down on him. It's because that's me. That's me, too. So now I know why we're such great friends. Welcome to Dirty Kurtz Dugout. Yeah, that guy, too. Thanks, Kurt. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And you're right. We are, we are great friends. I bet. So let's start back. You were a prosecutor in Pennsylvania, right? I was. And you got married. And I, I'd really like to know about the first dates, but I'm not even going to go there. 
because from what I understand, there were a lot of people that you worked with on a daily basis and that were around Linda also that did not know that you guys were any relation to Ray Kroc because evidently you didn't want it to be known. Is that true? Well, uh, Linda and I got married after my second year of law school. And when I graduated, um, Ray owned the Padres. But I decided I wanted to do my own thing. So I went back in a fairly rural county in northwestern Pennsylvania where we we lived for five years. And um, I was a criminal defense attorney. And then I became a prosecutor. And then in 1975... I ran for and was elected district attorney in the county. uh, I was pretty old then. I was 28. So why do you go to a small town in Pennsylvania to become a defense attorney? There's, I mean, who are you defending in a small town in Pennsylvania? Well, Not not big-time criminals, right? There wasn't any mafia there. Well, you know, actually there was. Oh, really? If you look at uh, the name of the town was Meadville. Okay. It was 90 miles from Cleveland, 40 miles from Youngstown, 90 miles from Pittsburgh, and about 100 miles from Buffalo. So it's close so, enough for people to go and hide. So there were, and I, the name of the firm I worked for was Pepicelli and Pepicelli. So when I started out doing criminal defense work, any time there was someone involved with the mob that got in trouble, um, I was the guy that I was the guy that got uh, elected to defend them. So you moved back to Pennsylvania after you married Ray Kroc's daughter. And all of a sudden, the phone rings one day. 1976, as a matter of fact. And it's Ray. And he wants you to come to San Diego for what purpose? Well, originally the idea was that I would be his eyes and ears. And so my title was going to be um, legal counsel. Um. And then sometime um, uh, between when I got on the plane to fly out here and got here, uh, I found out that uh, Buzzy Bavese had talked Ray into buying the San Diego Mariners and the World Hockey Association. And uh, I knew Buzzy only really by phone and having met him a couple times. And Buzzy would always say, hey, you ought to come out here and, you know, work out here and – uh, what I didn't know at the time was that Buzzy didn't mean it. Um, so he, he kind of uh, – and he found a way to, uh, uh, I guess, keep me on the sidelines uh, um, by uh, convincing Ray to buy the Mariners. And so the first year I was here, uh, I was responsible for running that uh, that team in the uh, the World Hockey Association. But that didn't last very long. No, it lasted a year, and after the uh, the first year, there was a uh, merger with the NHL, uh, and they didn't take San Diego. I think they took four, three or four of the uh, other cities. So that year, along with uh, the coming year, 1977, uh, were really one of the first couple of years of free agency in baseball. Yes. And Ray delves right into it right away. Um. Your first exercise as some type of a management on a major league club, um, looking over shoulders, whatever it was, uh, along with Buzzy. Bob Fontaine was here too, right? Bob Fontaine was here. Okay. So I I was here about a year, and then um, um, Buzzy decided that uh, uh, he would get in an argument with Joan Crock one night. Up in the owner's was, box. That was not a good idea. It, uh, so we, we were sitting there in this box full of people, and all of a sudden they started having this argument, and the place cleared out. I couldn't leave, so it's Buzzy, me, Ray, and Joan. And uh, eventually Buzzy stormed out. Joan looked at Ray and said, get rid of him. Why would he get into an argument with Joan? Do you know what the argument was about? We well, had to find out. Well, Joan didn't like Buzzy. Um, she didn't think that he was acting in in Ray's best interests, which which I agree with. Buzzy didn't really care about winning. 
Buzzy, when Buzzy came down from uh, the Dodgers, uh, part of his deal with C. Arnold Smith was that he was going to own 25% of the club. And he thought that carried over when, when Ray bought the club. It didn't. Uh, but Buzzy was more concerned with not losing money than he was with winning. But it wasn't Buzzy's money, right? That, that's a real comforting statement for the people that were fans of Padre baseball back in those times that the general manager wasn't concerned with winning. I mean, well, if I was paying for season tickets back then, I'd be pissed. Well, that, you know, and that's why you got rid of them, right? Not well, you, but the the Crocs. Well, Buzzy, if if uh, if during batting practice, someone in the outfield took a ball and threw it in the stands, Buzzy'd make a note of it and he'd he'd charge him for it. So that's an example. So Buzzy was cheap, big time. <laughs> you know, did he, he negotiate contracts? Well, yeah, he did. And after Buzzy left, I started to have a steady stream of uh, players and agents coming up to my office telling me about all the side deals that Buzzy had made with them. You know, I'm wondering if uh, John D'Aquisto, who's going to be on the show later on, uh, and we're not going to have him on right now, Dennis, so uh, you don't have to worry about giving him a call. Uh, But I wonder if he had any negotiations with Buzzy that he can remember, and we'll, we'll ask him about that. Remind me, because I forget stuff. Yeah, and I, I'm, about that time I'm thinking John may have been after Buzzy left, but I don't know. No. I think John was here from 77 to 80, maybe 78 to 80. I didn't research John as much as I did you. Well, you thank, were more fun to research. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> Uh, because I'm not going to talk to John about that much stuff. I mean, we're going to talk for a long time. <laughs> so let's continue on our merry way here, up the rungs of the ladder, all the way to uh, to 1979. Unless you've got a good story about 78 that I don't know about, because I wasn't here yet. And I know Raleigh was here, and tennis was here, because they had signed as free agents. In the winter of 76, uh, in the uh, spring of 77, and came to San Diego. And Raleigh was, that's when Raleigh and I were teammates for the first time, because I hated him when he was with the A's. I hated all the A's. And just couldn't stand him, especially Billy North. And then Raleigh was second. And then all the rest of the guys, it just wasn't fun playing against them. Is that because you couldn't hit Raleigh? Not really. I mean, he'll tell you he got me out every time he ever faced me, but that's not true. I remember trying to hit hit him in the chest with a with a pitch one day as a hitter. That's hard to do. I tried to do that to Dwight Gooden one night in New York too, and I almost did because I he was making me look like a fool until my third time up. I used to love the guys I got to play against: Steve Carlton, Dwight Gooden, Nolan Ryan. Those are the the pitchers that the regulars took rest on. So let's go to seventy-nine. Race fined a hundred thousand bucks for evidently saying in public, and you can correct me if this is this is wrong information, that uh, he would pursue Joe Morgan of the Cincinnati Reds and Craig Nettles of the New York Yankees if they were to become free agents. And evidently Bowie Kuhn didn't like that, and he fined Ray a hundred grand. You know, you got you have to remember one thing about Ray. He was first a fan, second a fan, and third a fan. Now, you you weren't here when he went on the microphone the first night. No, I wasn't. It, uh, but I heard about it. And that was all, that was the, the first game he owned the club, wasn't it? It was. And that that act, as much as anything, turned the franchise around. The year before, the team had drawn 600,000 people. He goes on the microphone that first night, he owns a club. Club's just as bad as the year before. Club ends up drawing over a million people. Just as bad a club. And it was because people believed that he was serious about wanting to win. Which he was. Which he was. And that's why I think a lot of us were sad uh, when 84 came around, and we'll we'll get to that in a minute, uh, because Mr. Kroc never got an opportunity to see the club win. And 
to put the San Diego Padres against the Chicago Cubs in the National League Championship would have been a dream come true for him. Well, it, it, as you know, Ray grew up in Chicago. Mm-hmm. What he, and what he used to do is he'd go out and make all his sales calls in the morning, and then he'd go out and sit in the bleachers uh, in Wrigley Field and watch the Cubs in the afternoon. So back to 79 real quick. He tells baseball to go to hell publicly. He said they can go to hell. It it doesn't make me happy anymore. And he turned the reins over to you, basically. Is that true? Yeah. It, no, that's that's basically true. Okay. It, I I think he was he was frustrated that it was so hard to put together a winning team. And it just that's what he wanted. He wanted to win more than anything. But he kept a low profile, and that was actually starting to happen. Well, the other, the other thing that happened, Kurt, was in um, December of 79, he had a stroke. Right. And so after he had that stroke, uh, he was confined to a, um, to a wheelchair. So obviously he had slowed down, although he hadn't slowed down mentally. So that probably more than anything else precipitated him telling me, you don't see what you can do. And this whole time I've blamed myself and Mike Hargrove because our trade was made right before he had his stroke <laughs> with the Texas Rangers. Uh, I was acquired by the Padres in the winter of 79, and Mr. Kroc had his stroke uh, right after that. So uh, naturally there was talk in the clubhouse of me causing that in Mike Hargrove because he was the – Human rain delay, if you remember Mike Hargrove stepping out of the box, adjusting his gloves. He was one of the first players uh, to force Major League Baseball to go on some kind of a clock. He was the one that that got it all started. So let's let's jump up to 1983. Well, I don't want to leave out Garve. The Padres signed Steve Garvey. That was their first really big free agent signing and robbery of a fierce competitor because Garve came from the Los Angeles Dodgers. So he signs a $6 million five-year contract. Not $6 million a year. $6.6 million five-year deal, which was unheard of at the time. It really was. That was a big contract. He would have never left the Dodgers if he didn't get a lot more money than what the Dodgers were offering him. Uh, you were right in the middle of that negotiation, correct? No, I, I'm the one that did the negotiation. So you know that number 6.6 is correct? Yes. Okay. Because that's what Garve told me. I've never asked anybody up until now. Now I know. And he would never buy breakfast. I mean, forget it. You know, I was making seventy-four grand. He would never buy breakfast. He wouldn't make me buy it. He just wouldn't buy it. He'd wait for somebody to come up. Oh, Mr. Garvey, let me get your breakfast. Oh, thank you, sir. That's Garvey. <laughs> nah, he's not that bad. <laughs> okay, 1983. This was, if if everyone that was ever a fan of Padre baseball could have seen this game and seen the reaction of Ray Kroc when Steve Garvey hit a game-winning Grand Slam home run. Were you in attendance in that game? I was. Why don't you tell the people what went on as or after Steve hit the home run? Now, Now you're testing my memory. Okay. I can give you a clue. Okay. You, it you involved, tell me a little bit. It involved tears. And rumor has it that Ray actually cried when Garve hit that home run to win the game. It was a grand slam. Four runs are scored. We win the game 4-1 to one because I was in San Diego the whole time Garve was. From the first day he reported – until I was forced out. We'll put it that way. 
We'll talk about that later. But I I heard about this, um, you know, a few days after that game. I don't know how it was brought up, but then I've read about it throughout the uh, the years that that actually happened. You know, I don't I don't know that I remember seeing the tears. Mm-hmm. Could have been because I was pretty excited myself, but uh, um, I don't know. You might have jumped up and hit him in the head, and that's why he was crying. It could be. <laughs> so, 1984. Tell me about 1984 from your vantage point. How, how much fun was it as management, ownership, front office, from that standpoint? Because I know how much fun it was from our standpoint down in the clubhouse. You know, I was a great baseball fan growing up. I grew up in Chicago, lived on the north side. I was a White Sox fan at a time when if you lived on the north side, you could only be either a Cubs fan or a White Sox fan. You couldn't be both. Uh, But uh, I was pretty practical back then. The White Sox were better than the Cubs, even though I saw most of my games in uh, in Wrigley Field. but when I was a kid, I lived across from a schoolyard, and I would go over and play these imaginary baseball games, bouncing a ball off the off the wall. And I, I, I often imagine what would it be like to be in a clubhouse the day a team won a pennant. And I, I remember 1959 when the White Sox won the pennant, and won a pennant since 1919. Air raid sirens went off in Chicago, and it just, you know, I just remember how exciting it was for the, uh, for the whole city of Chicago. And it was kind of the same thing in San Diego. San Diego really hadn't had a major sports championship. And, you know, I did, I'm trying to think of when it finally dawned on me that the Padres were going to have a chance to get in the playoffs. It, uh, um, as you know, uh, I don't. We ended up winning the division by what ten games? Yeah, it was quite a few. Quite a few. Yeah. It. Uh, uh, all I know is that uh, uh, it probably wasn't until there were uh, only a couple games left that I really believed that we were going to have the have the chance to be in the playoffs. It would have been a lot less, I believe, if it wasn't for Pascual Perez. <laughs> <laughs> we would we would have only won by four or five games if it wasn't for him. But he got our, our adrenaline flowing. That was fun. Do you want to talk about that? We'll talk well, about that. Do you want me to talk about one time when I wanted to kill you? We'll talk about, yes, but hold on to that thought because there's something else that I want to talk to you about that when we get finished here, you might want to kill me, and that's collusion. Not really because it happened. Everybody knows it. We're going to have Johnny D on when we come back. From my rant, which, as I mentioned earlier, I promised you a rant. And I also promised you a cold call to a Hall of Famer. Well, our Patreon subscribers, our Patreon reward subscribers are going to hear that cold call. And they're also going to hear this rant. Let's go back to Ballard and continue to talk. Ballard Smith here, our guest on the Pine at Dirty Kurtz Dugout. Uh, I know I mentioned Patreon. Uh, if you enjoy Dirty Kurtz Dugout and want to support the show, subscribe. And then rate and review the show whenever you get your podcast. It's fun. And whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Tuned In, or elsewhere, like Patreon, go there and listen to the show and tell your friends. We're going to get John Aquisto on the phone here. When was the last time you talked to Johnny D. Ballard? Would have no idea. Long time ago. Long time ago. Good. He is. Uh, he's got a little job with Major League Baseball now. Been been at it, I think, for about four or five years. Uh, we're gonna. We'll let him talk about what kind of job he has. I don't want to describe his job for him. You know why? Because I'm not really sure. <laughs> I think those people that work for MLB, they're not really sure what they do. They just do it. They've got a lot of people that 
that work for them, especially in the capacity of, you know, those ballpark cams that I know everybody that's listening to this show watches the MLB network. And if you watch MLB central in the morning, they'll go to eight different, 10 different ballpark camps around the United States in the different ballparks. There's cameras literally set up at every ballpark. And I've done shows from Petco Park before for MLB. And that's what John does. He makes sure those shows flow good. You know, he sets things up. Um, That's one of the things he does. And we've got him on the phone right now. First round pick. First round pick. First round. What were first rounders getting back then, Johnny D? Welcome. Hey, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. How are you? John D. Aquisto, folks, joins Ballard Smith. Johnny D. is with me. I'm, I'm looking at him. <laughs> hey, John, how are you? Long time no see. I, I, was, I, was, I, would, I think it's a, been a really long time. Yeah, it has. My friend. So first, first round pick out of St. Augustine High School in San Diego in 1970. I heard, you know, it, it's funny, but I've, I've become uh, friends with uh, a couple of people that are associated with uh, Balboa Thrift and Loan here in San Diego. And all I've heard since the day I met uh, Jim down at Balboa was John D'Aquisto. <laughs> you guys, did you guys play Little League Baseball together or something? Yeah, we did. I his brother, him, and uh, the whole Morstad family. Uh, it was uh, we had Jim Nettles, Greg Nettles. Uh, they were before us, but then the Morstad family came in, and we all played together. And uh, at Mike Morrow Little League, Pioneer Pony League, and uh, it was it was you know as you were a young kid playing ball in San Diego and uh, at Morley Field. And Morley Field was, you know, basically uh, uh, the field where a lot of things happened for the uh, Sandlot leagues in, in San Diego where a lot of talent played there. So I've, I've kind of uh, teased uh, our listeners with uh, what you're doing now. Um, yeah. And I, I basically said you work for Major League Baseball. That's so maybe you can, maybe you can tell us all what exactly it is that you do. Well, I do two jobs. Uh, first of all, I work for MLB Network, uh, doing the uh, ballpark cam, which is in production and engineering, and I also uh, work for the field timing coordinator's position which is with the uh, pace of game through the commissioner's office. Oh, that's perfect. I run the clock. So that two-minute and five-second clock that we see in the outfield that gets started after every inning is over, that is your department. That is correct. And there's one in every ballpark. Every ballpark. Okay, in, in, in a nutshell. MLB uses for, for pace of game. That okay, correct. in a nutshell, explain to the listeners and to me, Ballard, because these, these are all new rules for Ballard. Ballard was, was in the game when it was a little different, and so was I. I'm just, purist. We were all purists at that time. There you go. So tell us exactly what's going on with the clock right now because we heard so much about it in the winter time with yeah. the pitch clock which is not going on correct that's correct okay uh the there's alumni but the major, major league players association the union and the commissioner's office decided to keep the pitch clock this year and the commissioner's office put the Major League Players Association on uh, alert one year to make their decision uh, for next year. And uh, uh, they said that they were going to keep the games at 2.55, two hours and 55 minutes. 
Well, we've seen 330, 345. Uh, needless to say, it's uh, they've been long. And uh, at this particular stage, it's not because of the pace of game. It's more, more because of the players and situations that are happening in, in, in the game that cause this to, to occur. And but the here for the pace of game is we have a 30-second clock that is for every at-bat. At the end of every at-bat, a 30-second clock is implemented. And that means a, a strikeout, a fly, a ground ball. In that at-bat, we would start the 30-second clock. And that is connected directly to the uh, 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 replay to give the manager 30 seconds to make a decision whether he wants to challenge or not. And that's been the big play. The field timing coordinator handles that also. Uh, at the end of every inning, we have two types of clocks. We have a 2.05 clock, which is just for normal uh, normal televised games. And then we have the network games that are uh, done through MLB Network or ESPN or whatever you want uh, is producing the game at the time. Uh, that would be a nationally televised game would be 2.25. And so they get... A uh, little longer breaks in between for network advertising, and uh, uh, that is how that works. And so, at the end of every inning, uh, on the third out, we are to start the 2:05 or the 2:25 clock, and it runs down. And if uh, uh, when it gets down to the point down to zero, then play resumes. And if there's a pitching change in between, either a mid-inning pitching change, which means the manager will go out and make a change from the bullpen, bring a guy in. Uh, we would then uh, stop and reset the clock to 205 or 225. And uh, now it's from 225 to 205 for all pitching changes for network TV. And uh, then the pitcher comes in, he throws his warm-up pitches. You, generally, they get about six warm-up pitches, and they're usually ready to go by 20 seconds. And when they're all facing each other and alert, uh, then we uh, stop the clock and play resumes. 20 so seconds, six warm-up pitches? There's not a pitcher alive could go through throw well, six warm-up no, pitches. No, no, no. no, no. You're misunderstanding me. Uh, the clock runs down to 20 seconds. Okay. So so you have you know almost uh, – a minute and 40 seconds that, that go through. It's 145 is what they need for uh, network uh, commercials. And then at that particular stage, once it's achieved at that point, then play can resume at that time. Okay, you've got me confused. And I know everybody else out there is uh, up to date now. But you've got to answer Pretty a question. Much, yeah. <laughs> you got You have to answer a question for me. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I heard a pregame show. Uh, and I can't remember what town it was coming out of the other day. And while I ask you this question, make sure that your earplugs or your headphones that you have plugged into your phone or whatever yeah. phone that, that it's that it's good because we're getting yeah. a little bit of back uh, backwash. Yeah, there's probably a little stack, and I'll probably pull it off and go to my regular phone. Hold on. Right now, it's good. All right, so go ahead. I I heard this person make the remark that I wonder what they're going to do when the umpire's bell gets rung and the catcher goes out to give him a minute because it's common courtesy in baseball. And there's a lot of people that might not even know this. Yeah. That if a catcher gets a foul tip or if an umpire gets a foul tip, mm-hmm. one or the other will walk away and correct. give him time to regain himself, that especially if you get hit bad. If but now, bad, then they have to check them out for concussion protocol and everything goes into effect there and time is called. And that is considered an injury uh, time out. So there's no mound affect. visit. There's no, no mound visit. If a, no. if a major league catcher, uh, here's the umpire get his bell rung. He runs out to the mound. So does no. the person. No mound visit. Okay. So 
is the person that's doing the clock the same person that's keeping track of the mound visits? No. The mound visits are kept track by the official score and the stringer. Uh, okay. Those two particular individuals uh, who are stringing the games, and a stringer is a person that it does play-by-play, which is run up on the scoreboard at the time. And what happens at, at that particular instance when there's an injury timeout, everything goes into a void. Uh, nothing, nothing's charged to anybody. There's no mound visits. It's, a, it's, it's just a courtesy on, on a potential injury that could, could occur. And uh, they just want to make sure everyone's okay. So there is no mound visit charged. And uh, play will resume when everyone's in place again at Perfect. that time, or or they exchange an umpire. If it's there you that go, serious. folks. Basically, everything you need to know about the new rules. Oh, you know what I noticed, and I and I'm going to ask you, and what it's probably for not because I'm going to say that I know that it's up on the scoreboard. They yep. have a place for mound visits remaining. Yes, on the they scoreboard. Do. do they have it? Out in at, uh, at Diamondback every, Park. Yes, it's in the right center field uh, area, and it shows uh, say five and five or six and six, and then it counts down to zero. Oh, so and it's separate. It, it, it yeah, it, it's nice and big, and it sits out there so everyone can see it. And then if there's a discrepancy, they will call the stringer up in the press box and ask for that discrepancy to make sure that it is in a in the proper way. It it's actually it's actually in with uh, uh, runs hits errors and I believe it's next in line after that at Petco Park here. Yeah, you guys have a different setup at Petco. We have it totally separate in the right center field line, which shows mound visits and miles per hour and strikeouts. So it's in a totally clear area where everyone can see it. Both dugouts can see it clearly, and it's nice and big, very legible, and uh, you can't miss it. I mean, and if there's a discrepancy, then people can call the press box and ask, uh, as well as the umpire could call up and ask uh, how many mound visits are there because it's a crucial point if it's down to zero and they go out for a mound visit, the pitcher has to be removed. So that's the rule. Woo! The infielders and catchers have to have to stay uh, away, stay, stay away, away, and keep yep. track of what's going on. That's right. So you can't go out and talk to Wade Davis if your pitcher for the Cubs goes out there and he's your star closer, and you want to go out and talk to him. There's no mound visits left. You better stay back in your position in the box and don't break the dirt circle. Well, you, Ballard, and I have to get together on the golf course so we can uh, continue our conversation, not about rules, about other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny D., thanks yeah. for coming on. I always appreciate talking to you. John D. Aquisto, yeah. folks, San You're Diego welcome, native. Yes, sir. From yes, San sir. Diego, St. Augustine High School, Rookie of the Year in 1974 in the National League and a first-round draft pick of the San Francisco Giants in 1970 and later went on and played for his home team. Boy, that, you know, I've never asked you about that. We, we have to do this show again so I can uh, ask you about how excited you were when you found out that Ballard had acquired you because you were here in 77, uh, 80. So you must have had wind of it. Ballard's looking, looking at me quizzically like maybe it happened right before he got here. Because he was, uh, he kind of stepped into uh, management during the uh, 76 77 winter. When did you, when did you come over here, John? What year? He's gone. He's gone. Yeah, he just, he's gone. He left us. Yeah. Doesn't say goodbye. You know, he just leaves. It was interesting talking about the clock between innings. Mm -hmm. In, In 1980, the problem was almost reversed. Because we had just started doing a lot of television, and we wanted to run three 30-second commercials between half innings. They passed a rule that there had to be a minimum of 105 seconds between innings. That's how fast the, the switchover was back then. And you probably remember that back then the average 
length of a game was about two hours and ten minutes. Well, it's two twenty-five for a nationally televised game. Naturally, three twenty-five. No, it's two twenty-five. Oh, two. Oh, no. I, but, now, yeah, but the length of the game is like is what? Oh, three, it's three something. Yeah, it's over yeah. three hours. And supposedly, there's talk that the commissioner is going to force the pitch clock on and into the game uh, due to the fact that uh, everything's been tried and they just can't knock time off the game. So even though there's a 2.05 clock, everybody's running out to their position, into their position, there's so many different little idiosyncrasies that goes on. Like Johnny D didn't mention, and I happen to know this, uh, the 205 clock starts and stops. It doesn't ever stop. It runs out, or you can stop it if the pitcher's ready to throw his first delivery of the inning. But when it starts is right when the out is made, right when the umpire puts his arm up and says the out is made, except if the catcher or the pitcher is either on deck, at bat, or on the bases. And if that's the case... The 2.05 clock, you start it, but then you stop it when the catcher takes his first step into the dugout and restart it again. Or if it's the pitcher, you start it. When he enters the dugout, you wait for him to come out, you stop it, and you restart it again. So it gives the pitcher and the catcher gives the catcher time to get his gear on and get back out. Naturally, there's usually a guy that will go out and catch a couple of warm-up pitches. A pitcher's ready to go. But I think if you see most starting pitchers now, especially after the fourth or fifth inning, will only throw about four or five warm-ups. 1984. We're going to 1984. And we're going to to go a couple of ways in 1984. And one of them involves the commissioner of baseball – And the other one involves the National League champion, San Diego Padres, which we talked about the fact that Ray died in January of that year. Um, We went on to win the National League championship in 1984. Uh, We went on to play the Chicago Cubs in 1984. How etched into your mind is the night we came back from Chicago, down 0-2. And for the people that weren't around San Diego, and there's quite a few of them out there listening, or have never heard the story before, we got our butts whomped in Chicago. I, was it 11-2 and... No, I think the first game was either 12 or 13 to nothing. Nothing. We scored nothing. Nothing. And I think the second game was 4 to 2 or 5 to 2. Oh, I thought there was more of a I know Sutcliffe hit a home run and he pitched them uh where we pitched them the victory in the uh, in the first game. And uh and then we came back to San Diego. Can you uh, can you talk about that night when we got back here? Do you remember? Well, sure. I remember getting back to the. I remember getting back to the ballpark, and there were literally thousands of fans waiting. I, I mean, I don't know what time it was. It had to be late. Oh, it was late. I mean, it had to be just two or three in the morning. Two or three in the morning, and I, I think the expectation was everybody would get back, get in their car, and go home. But there are literally thousands of fans there, and um, I don't know for you as a, a ball player uh, what impact that had. But I, I would think that it probably had to give you a, an emotional uplift. I would think it, it absolutely did. And the two guys that I remember more than any other were Bobby Brown and Gary Templeton. And then Tempe continued it the next night when he was introduced in the third game, the first game here in San Diego, because the first two games were played in Chicago, which we lost, and the last three were going to be played here in San Diego if they were needed. 
Uh, of course, you only had to win three because it was three out of five back then. And uh, they already had stuff printed. I mean, you, you still had contacts in Chicago. I'm sure Ray had contacts uh, and Joan had contacts in Chicago, uh, even though Ray, Ray had passed away. But I literally have beer mugs that say the Chicago Cubs 1984 National League champions that had been printed up and given to the bars prematurely, may I add, that bartenders that I knew, I don't know how I got to know bartenders, but I did in Chicago, uh, they, they passed them on to me. They'd be left a ticket or two, and the bartenders took care of us, and we took care of them. So it was it was a good deal. But, I mean, that was really an amazing time. I mean, you talked about Ray on the mic 10 years earlier. And then you go to then. And that really turned this city into a baseball town. As good a baseball town as it could be. Before we get to that, the one thing I remember about leaving Chicago, maybe you remember this, we were both – the Padres and the Cubs were flying on United Airlines charters. And uh, traffic control in Chicago made us sit and wait till the Cubs plane took off. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. It, uh, and we were ready to go. And we sat for 15 or 20 minutes and uh, because the pilot came back and told us that that's the reason we weren't going, because they were going to let the Cubs go first. But, uh, um, that was nice. Yeah, that was that was. Uh, so speaking of uh, planes, um, Ray had a plane at one time. It's an old seven twenty, old seven oh seven, seven oh seven. That the interior was completely done. I mean, it was nice. Do you know why that plane was basically scraped? He just blew it away. It not literally, but Ray got rid of the plane in either late nineteen seventy nine or over the winter of nineteen eighty because of Big Mouth Raleigh. Raleigh complaining about and evidently Ray's bodyguard was on the plane or something. And I and I guess if something was said or something was done, it was his job to report to Mr. Croc, whatever whatever it was. So Raleigh complained about the Atlanta Braves getting back to San Diego before us. We had played in Atlanta, and the Braves got here, and we I, we saw them. I mean, I saw them in the in the uh, uh, at the airport, and I couldn't figure out uh, how they got back before us, but I wasn't the one. And then we lost, we lost the plane. It had like 60 or 70 first-class seats. There were chairs that turned around, uh, and card tables came up. And you could play cards. Uh, the only thing, the stewardesses were pretty ugly. It was Whitey Wiedelman. He was our stewardess. <laughs> and if you, if you knew Whitey, you'd know what I'm talking about. God rest his soul. He's such a great guy. But I would have rather had somebody that I could look at. Uh, on the plane instead of Whitey and Ray Peralta. They were our two stewardesses. But Raleigh complained and lost us the, uh, lost us the plane. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that Raleigh can uh, take total credit for that. Oh, really? You have uh, another story. So I mean, the biggest problem was those were old planes. They were really expensive to run. And it just became much more cost-effective to charter. Really? Uh, now, um, there's no question that Things like Raleigh complaining would get Ray upset, and um, uh, Ray would say things to me like, get rid of the plane. Um, but that's not the real reason. It just, it was, it was just, a, it just made more so sense So you charter that United flight that you're talking about from Chicago back then. Right. This is 1984. Right. How much did it cost? Oh, I, I, don't, I don't have any idea. But I do think that 707... When he bought it, I think it cost a million and a half dollars. That's all, huh? I think so, yeah. That's all. Listen to me. 
like it's chump change. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. Okay. I said earlier that. Don't forget, we got to talk about the time I wanted to kill you, too. Of course, I won't forget. I never knew this before, that you served on the executive committee of Major League Baseball from 1984 to 1987. And the reason I told everybody at the beginning of this, our little uh, show here, is that those were the years of collusion. And collusion has uh, reared its ugly head lately, not necessarily uh, because the owners are or have been colluding lately, but the word has been brought up again because of the free agent market and the way it went last year. And it was only natural for these guys that write that don't know what they're talking about and for the Players Association to point the finger and say, oh, the owners must be talking to one another because none of the free agents are signing. I mean, it was a little suspect for a little while. But Peter Ubroff became the commissioner of baseball in 1984. And he called a meeting at St. Louis. You were running the club. Were you at that meeting? I was. You were. And what did he say? Well, he had one of his lawyers get up and explain how um, how we could. Um, uh, so the idea was that if a if a club wanted to sign their free agent, everyone else would stay away. If a club decided they didn't want to resign him, then that player was fair game, but the amount of money that would be offered him would be kept within certain limits. And what would happen is that, um, for example, if we wanted to sign someone, another owner would be assigned to bird dog me to make sure that I didn't go over whatever that limit was. So, so you had a bird dog owner that was that was your counterpart, that if you wanted to sign somebody, then you had to report to them. Yes. And that was the way you guys kept in check amongst yourselves because the owners didn't trust one another either, evidently. <laughs> with, that, with that being done, how could you say they trusted one another? But did, did, uh, did Ubrov say that um, – if I sat each of you, he's talking to the owners. I don't know if you're at this meeting. You probably were. In front of a red button and a black button. And I said, push the red button and you win the World Series, but you lose $10 million. But you push the black button and you make four million and you finish somewhere in the middle. And he asked the owners what they would do. And then he paused just for a split second. And he said... Most of you are going to push the red button to win the World Series. He said, because you're a bunch of dummies. Were you ever at a meeting where Peter Yobroth called the owners a bunch of dummies? I was. <laughs> so did this shock you, or did you know it was coming? Well, uh, let me make a couple comments. One, I loved the idea of collusion because San Diego was a smaller market. We couldn't compete. When you think about the television dollars that the Yankees or the Dodgers were getting compared to what the Padres were getting, it made it so the Dodgers and Yankees could go out and sign somebody, make a mistake, and just go sign somebody else. If the Padres sign somebody and make a big mistake, they're stuck with them. They can't really... Uh, they can't do anything. They can't go out and find somebody to um, to replace them. So, uh, to me, it gave us a chance to compete. And, you know, who wouldn't want to play in San Diego, all things being equal? So it seemed to me that that was going to give us uh, a chance. Um, but the big reason that it didn't surprise me was that back in 82 and 83, when both Garvey and Gossage were signed, 
there was also collusion going on. So um, that story hasn't been talked about. Um, we're not going to talk about it tonight. No, but we're going to talk about it someday. <laughs> the hairs on my arm just stood up. But I signed I signed a three-year contract with the San Diego Padres in 82. That's probably because you like me so much. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about what really ticked you off about me or what I did to tick you off. Well, I'm just going to tell you one. It's only one. If it's only one thing, I'm doing really good. No, it's not one thing, but it's more than one. But uh, so towards the end of the season, and you might remember this, we were in Atlanta, and you know, I we pretty much had the division clinched, and so we're going to be in the playoffs. So I'm not with the ball club. I'm up at Disneyland, and I'm standing in line at the Jungle Cruise with my four young daughters, and I'm listening to my transistor radio. And as I turn it on, I hear Jerry Coleman excitingly talking about Kurt Bavacqua with his shirt ripped off going up in the stands after fans. But you didn't hear the whole story. Well, you know, I probably never have heard the whole story. But all I could see was my life in front of me wondering how many people were going to get hurt. As Mr. Bavacqua was leading the charge to defend the honor of the Padres. Well, that's kind of a true story. Uh, but that was in the eighth inning of a fight that went on from the first inning on. So it was pretty good. And considering I never got kicked out of the game, that's unbelievable. That's really cool. But I did get a letter from Chubb Feedy saying that in reviewing the tape of the fight, it was a huge momentous mistake by his office that I wasn't fined. So I might have got fined. I can't remember. I, I know there were 17 guys ejected from the game. I think I might have gotten fined. Yeah, I might have gotten thrown out of the game in the eighth inning. But it, the the amazing thing is I didn't get thrown out before that. Did we pay the fines? Yes, you did. Did you thank me? I don't know. Well, Absolutely, I thanked you. Okay. I thanked you because I that was also the time where I started dressing up like Dick Williams, <laughs> which I have a great picture of you and I. As a matter of fact, I think I sent it to you. Um. I, and I found it in the archives. Standing at the end of the tunnel, leading into the dugout. And I was about to take the lineup card out, dressed as Dick Williams. And he was up in the press box. And it was his first day of being suspended. And the umpires weren't expecting it. Nobody on the <laughs> bench was expecting it. And I really got to look like him. I mean, I put powder baby powder in my hair and made my hair white. It was awesome. It was so much fun. Collusion in 1982 in 1983. Well, you've heard it first here because I guarantee you haven't heard that anywhere else. My guest, Ballard Smith, thank you so very, very much. We're going to end this episode five and uh, make arrangements for you to come back uh, Don Fear is going to be on the next podcast or two. Would you like to be in studio when Don's on? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we might create a stir. Don Fear, naturally, uh, executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association, um, along with Marvin Miller. Um, if those two guys told us to jump off the Coronado Bridge, we would have. That's just the way it was. Well, they did an amazing job for you. They uh, they did a great job. And uh, there is some rumblings right now within the Players Association on, uh, not the Players Association, but the players, on whether or not they're happy uh, with their leader, Tony Clark. Uh, that's something else we're going to look into. 
But uh, we're definitely going to follow up with uh, with some more chat here. So we're going to have to go out on the golf course. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, remember, go to Patreon. Take a look at it. Uh, you can download the show for free. But if you want to get quality content, you want to get good production like we get here, uh, you want to see maybe Facebook Live pages, uh, that's all stuff that we're looking into, and it costs money. So support us, and uh, we'll give you some stuff that, uh, that will surprise you and that uh, enlighten you and also make the hair stand up on your arms like it did me tonight. Collusion in 82 and 83. I loved it. Ballard Smith, my guest. I want to thank John D'Aquisto, everybody, for listening to Dirty Kurtz Dugout. Until next time, good night, everybody. Talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella. Talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller. The scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially with... Mickey and the Duke Well, Casey